Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, I just want to let you know that if you enjoy the Dare Daniel podcast, if you like the work we're doing here, you can help us grow the show by making a donation through the Dare Daniel website. Your generous contributions will help offset the cost of producing the show and will also enable long-term projects. You can make a one-time payment or set up a monthly subscription. Any amount helps, and it's really greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot, and here's the show. Fresh chickens. You're listening to the Dare Daniel podcast, aka the Scare Daniel podcast, where you send us your most sinister, scary movie dares, and we suffer the consequences for your amusement. I'm Corky McDonald, and I'm a doer. And with me, as always, is Daniel Barnes, a film critic for the Sacramento News and Review, and a member of the San Francisco Film Critic Circle. Hi, everyone. As Corky said on this show, we do your dirty work by watching the most unwatchable movies you can imagine, and then we review and rate them. On our unique system, a run-of-the-mill bad film, we rate it a dare. We give a double dare to those truly atrocious movies, and we reserve the reverse dare for those despised movies that we think are actually pretty good. Today on the podcast, Robert Hiltzik's 1983 cult horror movie, Sleepaway Camp. So this week, I brought a beer from Fort Rock Brewing out of Rancho Cordova. Uh, you and I both went to school. Rancho! Rancho. Yeah, Rancho representing. It is called Intergalactic Hop Goblin. It is uh, another New England-style hazy IPA. Made with Galaxy Hops, which we talked about in our uh, podcast 11.5, I believe, our mini episode, Galaxy Hops and Hazy IPAs. From Madagascar. It is 7, uh, 7% alcohol by volume, and of course it's got that great hazy color, it's got the tropical and citrus flavors, it's got the citra hops in there, Another nice uh, juicy beer, and very delicious. They're doing really good work out of Fort Rock and Ranch Cordova. Wow, this goes down way easy. Yeah, too easy. This is fantastic. Yeah. Sleepaway Camp came to us as a dare from frequent contributor Heather Smith. Heather of Fifty Shades fame? Yes. Yeah. Hall of Shame status. Wow. That is, I mean, this is a big hitter right here. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) She's got pedigree. She gave us the dare for Sleepaway Camp, calling it, oh, I don't know if this is a pun, but she says it's campy. It's fun. It's kind of fucked up. (laughs) It is definitely all three of those things. It is all three of those things. Kind of is the only thing I quibble with. (laughs) So Sleepaway Camp, uh, written, directed, and executive produced by Robert Hiltzik. He's a triple threat. Uh, He was making his first movie after graduating from New York Film School. Film School at NYU, I should say. It was shot at the same upstate New York summer camp where he claims that he spent summers as a child, which is rather troubling (laughs) in many respects. Uh, it received a limited regional release in November 1983. I have no idea what that means. Yeah. It officially premiered in Los Angeles in May 1984, where it received largely negative reviews. Uh, this was before they had complete box office records, but suffice to say, it bombed in limited release, made about 90000 at 15 Los Angeles area theaters. Hiltzik actually sold the rights to Sleepaway Camp in the late 1980s and effectively left the film industry to work in a law firm. He pretty much just thought, this is it. Uh, yep. Two sequels were made by o- other people. 
Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, and Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. Um, but after learning the film had gained a cult reputation, Hiltzik actually returned in the 2000s to make Return to Sleepaway Camp, <laughs> which actually ignored the plots of those first two sequels and was more of a direct sequel to the film that we're about to review today. Sure. Sleepaway Camp has a rating of 80 on Rotten Tomatoes, 16 of 20 approved, and 58 on Metacritic, but all those reviews are new. They're not from the era of original release. Half of those 20 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes are from the last four or five years when the film has enjoyed an even larger acceptance as a cult classic slasher movie, Corky. Yeah. Neither of us had ever seen this movie before. I didn't know very much about this movie at all. Do you think it lives up to the hype as a cult classic slasher movie? I think it absolutely lives up to the hype. Yeah. Because this is a fucked up movie. It is. This is completely one of those movies where... Oh my God! Have you seen that movie? You yeah. gotta see this movie. Like you have to see this. Yes, I. But I do like that he did this. It was a full Hiltzik vision. It was yeah. all Hiltzik, baby, all the way. He did it, and then was like, "No, nah, fuck this! I'm out." And then here's after two decades, people people really, are actually kind of into this movie yeah, in a weird way. Into, into how fucked up and dumb yeah. it is. Oh, I gotta come back, baby. They yeah. want more Hiltzik magic. I, yeah, I find this film utterly fascinating. Yes. In this in the way that it kind of completely blows up all of your notions about the slasher genre, differences between high and low art, differences between good acting and bad acting. This movie is so fascinating to me because at times it feels incredibly sophisticated and like Hiltzik knows exactly what he's doing and what he's trying to achieve and how he's trying to subvert the horror genre. And at other times, it seems as though some sort of a primitive hill person like Nell has <laughs> wandered upon a camera in the woods and is like, ah, guy in jet. And it's just like somehow figured out how to turn it on. Yeah, some kind of gods must be crazy thing. They found a camera, just accidentally mm-hmm. turned it on, and then captured a bunch of people just saying random shit and 10,000 monkeys banging on 10,000 typewriters. <laughs> 10,000 just accidentally made a movie. Exactly. No, there's times where this feels like it's a David Lynch movie, and then there's other times where it feels like it was made by 12-year-olds. Like, it's absolutely fascinating to me. And I, it does not surprise me that the movie got, you know, pretty much ignored upon release. On its limited regional limited release? Limited regional release. Which means I showed it to a couple friends <laughs> in my house. <laughs> and upon its larger 15 Los Angeles area release uh, in 1984. Yeah. You know, being a film critic myself, I know that film critics, especially the ones who who see the movies in theaters and are sort of like your first responders, these are the people who are going to set the tone. Generally, they are very reactive. Yeah. And they are very much geared towards making sure that something fits a mold. And if it doesn't fit that mold, then it's not acceptable. And so here you have a movie in 1983 Height of the slasher movie era. Yes, right. I mean, uh, Friday the 13th was 1979, so they've just been cramming these out ever since then. And here's this movie, so if you're a critic, you're thinking, here we go again, horny teens at summer camp. Yep. And you look at it and you're like, well, it's not even doing what those slasher movies do. It's not doing that in the right way. The death scenes aren't done in a slasher movie way. The hero slash villain is not is nothing like what you expect. The implements of murder are definitely nothing like what you expect. Oh, someone is killed with a beehive in this fucking movie. Someone is eaten alive by bees by bees. in this movie. Someone falls into a boiling pot. Oh, but there's so much going on. So maybe we should just get right into the yeah, movie let's get and into it. how amazing this thing is, right? Honestly, from the first it's no, we're not even on the first image. The first words that appear on the screen, Corky, explain. In fond memory of mom, comma, 
a doer. What the fuck does that mean? I think this has to be the only slasher movie that's been dedicated to somebody's <laughs> mother. What's mom? And not not mom. Hey, you were the best. I love you. It's mom. You're a doer. Yeah, you, you did, did this. stuff. You did this. No, I'm just right away, you are so completely displaced because it's like, is this the filmmaker dedicating it to his mom? Is this an, an inner dedication? Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's what not is even it. happening? Yeah. Right? And then when you get into it, the parental <clears throat> dynamics in this movie make you wonder, was like, he trying to fucking talk I, shit to his I know. mom with this? Thanks, mom. So, yeah, it's a completely inscrutable from the very beginning. Yeah. So, we get our opening images, which it's a lake on the woods. It's totally quiet. It's, it's very totally much, empty. Very much fall. Yeah. And this is where I was like, oh, this might be actually a pretty good movie because it's set up pretty well. Nice shots They're of an empty fantastic camp. Fantastic shots. Interspersed with sounds of children playing in you camp. You hear these noises, but everything's empty right now. You actually see a for sale sign, Camp Arawak is yeah. the name of this camp. Nice moody opening yeah so there's all these empty fields and playgrounds and then it cuts to what is seemingly the same lake in the woods although it's not obviously but it's a similar lake on the woods and now there's people on the beach it's sunny out and everything is is everyone's active and they're out on the lake and then so from that opening where i'm like hey this is kind of proficient this is kind of maybe technically correct the very next thing when once we get people actually speaking dialogue i'm like oh no no, no this is fucking, absolutely not this deserves a regional release <laughs> it is crazy bad acting this is people who have never uttered dialogue it is before. stunningly bad but i will say it is the kind of like weirdly perfectly People, filmmakers try to make actors act that bad yeah. on purpose and, and can't possibly do it. it. That's just why it feels like a David Lynch movie to me, where everyone is just acting very odd. And sometimes a, a great director like a Lynch or a Kubrick will actually want someone who or is... Or a Hiltzik. Or, or a Hiltzik. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned him in the same breath. <laughs> but they'll want someone who is sort of bland, Yeah. right? And and boy, is everyone here bland <laughs> as, as fuck? So we get a sailing boat with two children. One boy, one girl. One boy, one girl. They're having fun. They're just having a laugh about on the boat. And there's a lot of people out on the lake. There's some water skiers out on the lake. There's a boy and a girl uh, driving it and a girl uh, getting pulled behind. Water skiing behind. And the boy and the girl driving the boat are acting like, I don't know if you ever saw Saturday Night Live's Vanessa Bayer, where she does the children's community theater actors. Every dialogue is like, my dad says you're going to be great at this. This boat is going too fast, Johnny. Uh, so the kids are roughhousing on the boat. They got some monkey shines going. So they tip <laughs> over this little sailboat that they're on with their father, and they all fall into the water. And he's like, "Are you rapscallions?" The sequence, though, when they go to sneak the up the timing on dad, this is bizarre. When they go sneak up, like the boat is now sinking into the water. Where the, and the dad is acting like he does not know there are two children who have snuck up behind him. They don't even touch him, and he trips and falls over. What? And the falls. whole thing falls over. They're having a lark about. And they all just basically hang out in the water while this <laughs> mini drama plays out. Uh, well, actually, somebody comes up on the beach yes. and says, in a very, again, kind of vague sort of way, says, we got to meet Doc. Uh, and the kids ask, is Aunt Martha coming? And he says, yes, but Ricky is not coming. Okay. Uh, while this is happening, the motorboat with the water skier is now tearing towards this family that is on this shallow part of the beach. They're towing a water skier, but she has convinced this boy to let her drive the motorboat 
So she's driving the boat now, and she's not paying attention. Uh, the The water skier is saying something like, "You're about to kill this family." The water skier gives one of the best performances in the movie because yes. she screams, no, oh screeches God. every line of dialogue. So she's screaming at them, "You're going to kill this family that's hanging out in the water by driving straight at them." They don't notice anything. They turn around and see them. The woman accidentally hits the accelerator. No, it was the guy. The guy accidentally yeah. hits the accelerator. This is all happens through very fast cuts. The guy hits the accelerator. They zoom right over the father's head. <laughs> this is captured in, this is again, this amazing mix between what we saw in the opening of yeah. these amazingly sophisticated images setting the scene to now the most primitive murder in like cinema history. It, 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 it's just like you see this boat like right over it him. It does like a Six Flags water show stunt <laughs> over the dad's face. It cuts back to the man who was standing on shore. He just whispers, John. John. And then it cuts back to a, we see people screaming. some things floating in the water. The father's floating in the water. A mangled life jacket is floating in the water. We're not exactly sure what happens to the kids. The water skier is screaming her head off, screeching, just nailing it. And this like sets a tone for like the man on the beach. His reaction sets the tone for the entire movie of how you react to someone who is screeching at you, which is you sort of look at them quizzically. <laughs> What's all this about? Our last image is of a floating uh, life jacket, so we know one of the children or two of the children are dead. Yeah, we're not actually sure, but we get a card that says eight, eight years later. We have uh, another just tremendously amazing performance. This is such a strange performance. As we were saying, the movie, there's bad acting all around. But everybody bad acts in that way where it's like they're reading off of a cue card, yeah. right? Like they're just reading the dialogue as it is written. It's a it's a natural to the point of being almost zombified, right? Now in comes Aunt Martha, who right. was referred to earlier on the beach. Remember, John says that Aunt Martha is coming, and Doc. She, yeah. she mentions that she's a doctor. This woman is doing full-on character work. This is like Long Day's Journey into Night, Tennessee <laughs> Williams, Glass Menagerie type shit. She, she is like going for the rafters. She's playing to the back of the room in an empty house. She is, she is playing so, by herself. So big, and her outfit is bonkers. Yeah. Explain what she's wearing. She's got a beret on. She has a knit beret. <laughs> she has a knit beret. She has a button-up blouse. She has some sort of a string tie on her blouse. But she also delivers every line and then regards to herself her out her thoughts like an old commercial like Dan usually doesn't turn down my second cup of coffee. Like <laughs> she says like I've got your I've got your lunches in case you get hungry on the way to camp. Yes, that is a good idea, isn't it? And she mentions that uh, she remembered something and that she has a string around her finger, but they have to remind her what the string is for. It's like a 4-minute scene of her trying to remember what the string it, on it her finger so is. It is so twin peaksy because again, it's like someone coming in and doing a big character while everyone else is like acting like they're in this completely different movie. Then we get our first hinting at incest. Because they remark about how the kids needed physicals to get to camp. And she tells them not to tell them who did the physicals. And Ricky swears, I'll never tell who did this. Angela has not spoken. Angela has not spoken. We should say Ricky and Angela are the kids that are going to camp. Ricky and Angela, they both seem to be about the same age. I think Ricky's like a year older. He had been to camp the previous year. So I think this is her first year. They're, they're both supposed to be about 13 or 14. One of the f really interesting things about this movie, too, is that when you think of most of the slasher films of this era, all the teenagers were played by people in their 30s. Sure. These are actual kids. Yeah. Like, the kids are actually played by kids, which really ramps up the level of disturbance. Yes. 
So the kids are streaming off the bus, running past this disgusting crew. Oh, there's a muscular guy and an old man shouting directions at them. Yeah. This crew of very lascivious uh, men who work in the kitchen, and one of them says, look at all that young, fresh chicken. Mm. Where I come from, they call them baldies. Jesus. Like, where the fuck do you come from? Pederastville? Yes. The fuck is this place that you're from? And I'm pretty sure, I mean, he's telling his coworkers. I'm <laughs> he's basically <laughs> announced to his coworkers, I'm going to molest these children and who are And one of them just here. laughs them off. Like, ah, that's old Jim. Ricky fits right in. He sees some friends from last year. Angela, who we find out is his cousin, is a loner and is kind of weird. So this is where we first kind of suspect, okay, maybe Angela is probably the little girl. From the beginning. From the beginning. That survived. Yeah. So he runs into his friend Paul, and Paul is played by uh, the kid from Firstborn. And he tells him, hey, man, have you seen Judy? Judy, the girl with the big honkers. He cups his hands at his chest and says, <laughs> man, oh, man. And I'm just like, Judy got gazongas over the year. And in comes Judy. And Judy <laughs> sure hates Angela. Off the, off the bat. Just, just does not like nope. Angela. Judy, I love Judy so much. Judy sasses every no matter, scene up. No matter what, Judy is ready to sidle in, like ready to sidle in and just start screaming at you or try to seduce you. And she's not rocking a side pony so much as she's rocking a side stallion. She's got like her entire hair <laughs> is over on the side. She's constantly sort of sneering slash smirking. She strides and slides into each, in and out of each scene. She's fantastic. But one of my favorite lines here is when, uh, when Ricky finds out that Judy got boobs over the year, he turns to Angela. He goes, we, we were steadies last year. And he says it like happily to her. You'll probably bunk with her or be in the same cabin as her. Like, Angela, you'll appreciate her boobs when you get to share yeah, no, When you see it, you'll, you think we're jerks now, but really. You'll you get a cabin. You'll get a gist you'll of the, get a look. the B cup she's rocking. Um, but we find out, uh, we kind of, time is very hard to figure out in this movie. Yeah. But maybe it's a few days later. We find out Angela is not eating and she's not speaking. She's and not talking. This is where we, I think we've met him earlier, but this is where we first get to meet another one of my favorite characters in this movie. Ronnie. Oh, God. Ronnie, the camp counselor, who is constantly wearing a tank top, showing off the most amazing arms. This movie is set full of people from Long Island, but Ronnie is the most Long Islandish of the Long Islanders. He's got the long hair. He he always has the tank top on, but sometimes he'll have a red hoodie over it. And he's got dolphin shorts on, so... And Ronnie's defining character trait is good intentions gone horribly (laughs) wrong. He... He is such a sweet guy. He seems so sweet, but he everything is. he does is a complete fucking disaster. In this first scene, he sees Angela. Angela's not eating. She's not speaking. So he says, oh, Angela. Okay. No, he says, he says, Angela. <laughs> oh, Angela. Angela, maybe we could take you into the kitchen and all, maybe to cook and find you something nice. So he immediately takes her to pedophile cook. And, and no and matter how- like, I'll leave you here with him. Don't worry about yeah, it. No matter how good your intentions are when you're wearing- shorts that show your balls coming out of the bottom <laughs> if you're being tender to a 12 year old your intentions still look malicious yeah especially when you take her into the uh, kitchen where the man who said look at all the fresh young chicken there's no such thing as too young yeah. you're just too old yes especially when you just leave her alone with that guy who's drinking a beer at this camp and it's just like yeah make her some make her an ice cream sundae or something this <laughs> is just where i wrote this movie is off-putting it's insane so, uh, so Artie, the pederast. Yeah, he takes Angela into the walk-in and immediately starts undoing his pants. Immediately. 
uh, Ricky walks in on them and tells them to get the hell out, and he threatens Ricky and says, you better not tell anybody. Right. Uh, immediately, like the next scene, uh, what's his name? What's the pedophile's name? Artie. Artie the pedophile is, he's <laughs> cooking, he's got a giant pot. Him and James Earl Jones's father. <laughs> That's James Earl Jones's father is in this movie. Oh, is that really? Uh, yes. Damn. Him and James Earl Jones's father are in this movie in this kitchen, which would not get an A rating anywhere because there's fucking <laughs> flypapers hanging from the ceiling with dead flies all attached. It's the early '80s, man. He's got a pot that's the size of I don't know Manuel Lewis. Sure. It's it's, it's like Gigantic. three and a half feet tall, and there's all this corn shucked all around him, and he's like, "Is he goes." James Earl Jones' father goes, is it ready yet? He stands up on this stool because it's the pot so tall, opens it up, some dry ice smoke comes out of it. He says, a few more minutes, just puts the lid back on. Like, whatever's happening in there, he knows it's a few more minutes away. <laughs> so it's boiling water, right? Boiling water. We get the classic POV killer shots of this sort of handheld camera that's sort of wandering into yeah. uh, coming in. Because James Earl Jones' dad, who's who's plays Ben, he's left now. He took off uh, – the uh, Albert, what the hell is his name? Alfred. Ar- Artie. Artie the pedophile was like, he's on top of it. Somebody comes up from behind him, pushes him. He almost falls into the pot. He, this is so awkward how yeah. it's framed the physically. He somehow grabs hold of something, a, a, a counter or something yeah. like that. It's a shelf that Rawhead Rex would have definitely destroyed <laughs> in his rampage. And he says, hey, help me out. You almost pushed me into the pot. And he pointedly says, hey, kid. Help me out. You yeah. Know, so we know the killer is a kid. Absolutely. But the way it seems as though he could just push away yes. very easily. There's <laughs> no. It, it's only framed to make it look like there's some tension to it because it's just someone leaning over a pot. You exactly. can just back up from it. Just push away. Yeah. There you go. But he's but screaming. No, he can't do it. And it, sure enough, a hand comes in, yanks the stool out from under him. The pot, he grabs it. It falls on top of him. He's on the ground. He's screaming. In walks James Earl Jones' father to find him screaming his head off. And again, because this is how you react to that in this movie, James Earl Jones' father stands in the doorway looking at him with a very quizzical expression. Pants still down from when he was taking a dump. (laughs) This movie is so off-putting when it doesn't even mean to be. The next shot is him bandaged up on a gurney with a hospital attendee Still screaming. So this man's been screaming for two hours solid, right? Yes. The time it took. And the physician says, I don't have a (laughs) I don't have a drug strong enough that will make the pain stop. And I'm like, so you gave him nothing? (laughs) You didn't give him any medicine? You're like, well, something. I either get rid of all the pain or I get rid of no pain. I and I the doctor has this amazing line where uh Ronnie, the well-meaning weirdo, says, Poor guy must be going crazy. And the doctor goes, if he's lucky. <laughs> what? That's, what? Yeah. Uh, but the camp owner named Mel, who is... Wow. His fashion, I would describe as Mr. Furley Chic. Oh, yeah. Good, good. Um, yeah. He decides to jaws mirror the situation and cover up the death and say that it was an accident and not not tell any of the campers not about to, this whole thing. I nope. mean, yeah, we don't need to tell the campers. They think it's an accident. He pays the kitchen staff a little bit of extra money to keep quiet. So this next sequence, this is where I'm like, this could, like Robert Hiltzik is like fucking with us this or something. This is the prank scene, right? No, this is the baseball oh, scene. Okay. Oh, no, what, we, we skipped over the prank what scene. What did we skip over? So there's a scene where they're in the cabin, the boys are in the boy cabin, and it's obvious Ricky's going to play a little prank on one kid named Mozart. He's going through this long, drawn-out thing of like mind over matter. Yeah, I'm going to tell you you can't do a sit-up. So it's like light as a feather, stiff as a board yeah, kind of yeah. game. And the, the Mozart is laying on the ground with a towel over his face, and he's like, 
long build up. You can't do a setup because you're thinking that you can't do it, but you're going to try. And Mozart's like, no, let me try. Let me try. Yeah. The, the payoff, he says, on the count of three, I'm going to lift the towel. One, two, three. He lifts the towel. This kid sits up and you get an actual shot of a 12 year old boy's ass with another 12 year old boy putting his face dead in it. Yeah. And I'm just like, there was a grown How man who wrote this How movie this filming this. Yeah. And then they high five and they laugh and they walk. And I'm just like, what did I watch? Well, that's what what, the strange here? thing about this movie is that. So you have these kind of two tracks on this movie where there's this sinister thing where all the murders are going on, but then there's the track where just summer camp is going Hiltzik's on. Hiltzik's reliving his camp memories. And it feels strangely authentic, sure. right? It's extremely, that happened. That happened. Like yes. it feels so detailed and it feels so realistic and those scenes will go on for a while. Yes. Yeah, and Mozart is kind of the nerdy kid of, of the group, but this it doesn't really come up. So in the next scene is where I really felt like Hiltzik was just fucking with us in a way that felt very intentional and very like I, I almost know what I'm doing here because he has a baseball game. I love this scene. It practically occurs in real time. <laughs> <laughs> they have this baseball game where like usually a baseball game you're like okay we're just going to see the plays that really matter to the outcome of this game. Yeah. No. no. We get we, several dissolves throughout the game. We get a lot of at bats. And that's another thing the dissolves uh, uh, which we didn't bring in. The scene transition here. There are so many dissolves Fade in, fade outs, wipes. Like it, it, it's, it, it feels like someone is like filmmaking 101. I'm cramming it all in there, yeah. baby. I, I want going for it. The baseball is also kind of where you see the snobs versus slobs, if you want to call it that. But it's just kind of younger kids versus older kids. Yeah. And you know how Judy is always mad at Angela. She's just all the time. These older kids are just always mad with Ricky. And yeah. Ricky, Ricky's got a little bit of a He's got a chip on his anger shoulder. issue, right? Absolutely. My favorite line of dialogue in this movie is when <laughs> Ricky's giving some chatter. He's at third base. He goes, hey, a, a pitch goes by the batter. He goes, hey, get the bat off your shoulders. <laughs> and so it goes like this. It goes, hey, you give me Ricky's line. Give me Ricky's line. Hey, get the bat off your shoulders. Hey, get the bat off your shoulders. Hey, fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> the guy just screams at him. <laughs> Everybody is at 10 at all Always. times. But it feels, again, in a weirdly authentic because they're also, these kids are fucking hormonal. Like, oh, that's crazy. True. They are off out of their minds, these kids. Another one of my favorite things is in amongst the younger kids is Gene. Gene is the camp counselor for that cabin, for the younger kids' cabin. He's dressed like Bruce Jenner in Can't Stop the Music when he finds himself. He's got a half shirt and high cut-off shorts. Gene is 30. Yes. He looks like Mario Cantone Absolutely. in a half shirt, and he's hanging around with all these young kids. And we should say that while none of those real specific plot elements or scenes necessarily were borrowed uh, from for Wet Hot American Summer, I will say the milieu and sort of the archetypes, the characters, the costumes, things like that Absolutely. are like straight out of this movie. The other thing I would say is like Wet Hot American Summer, they really hit up like the sex part, right? Mm -hmm. That part, like you said, also uh, Friday 13th did it. It's all, you know, older adults acting as teenagers. No, these are teens. Yeah. And they are very sexed up. <laughs> they are very sexed up, yeah. So the... Oh, the uh, sorry, the other great line of dialogue. Eat shit and die, Ricky. Eat shit and live, Bill. <laughs> a grown man wrote that. Nice. So this kind of, uh, at the baseball game, the younger kids win. Ricky's group wins, uh, which kind of pisses off the older kids. And that kind of comes to a head that evening at the canteen where there's sort of like a little dance or something like that for yeah, the campers. Yeah, a little social. Ricky comes in wearing a cowboy hat, just out of nowhere. <laughs> he just walks into the cat like, 
the confidence of this kid. I love it. And the uh, older kids are all the MAGA youth. They're all toxic masculinity over on the side. Absolutely. Talking about which girls are going to ask to go skinny dipping. And they, they go over and they screw with Angela. They, they say they're going to ask her out, but they just start screwing with her. She doesn't respond. Her response to everything is to give a very quiet, intense stare. Yeah, a lot of So staring. she just stares and stares very intensely, like almost slightly hostile, but not quite. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's very intense. Yeah. It's very intense, wide-eyed, uh, unbroken stare. So Ricky sees that they're screwing with her. This starts a huge brawl that that jumps from two people to 12 people in about a half second. It goes full roadhouse. <laughs> it's just straight up like an Elvis movie all of a sudden. The funniest thing is they it gets broken up, and then Gene takes Ricky out of there. Yeah. <laughs> they leave together. Yeah, Mel is funny because Mel is just watching this very impassively <laughs> as like a half, like a dozen or so kids are beating the shit out of each other. Uh, Paul, his friend, uh, comes up to Angela and says, "Sorry about what happened to your family." So right. again, a, a slightly another clue that Angela is probably the little girl from the beginning. And uh, interesting choice of opening, though. Trying, trying to get to know a girl. Hey, sorry about your family dying. <laughs> That's how you you, get to you're him. back at a lake, huh? That's how you get to him. Uh, and they have a little moment, and as they leave, she says, Good night. <gasps> she spoke. She actually spoke to him, and he kind of leaps in the air. Hurrah, hurrah. And Judy is none too happy with that development. Oh, my no. Judy does not like Angela's happiness at all. So the douche kid from the, the other camp, the rival bunk. Billy. They everyone all everyone goes skinny dipping. Well, basically all the boys go di- skinny dipping. The one douche gets one other girl to come out with him on the rowboat, which of course he capsizes in the lake, and she swims back because she's pissed off at him. He decides to stay underneath the capsized canoe, singing "Hey Bob a Rebob, Hey Bob a Rebob, Hey Bob a Rebob" <laughs> for no reason. Suddenly, another figure pops out of the water right in front of. Him. We only see the back of their head. Dunks his head under the water. Uh, the next morning, they discover douche boy's dead body, water snake coming out of his mouth. Hey, Baba Reba. Which was actually a pretty potent image, I thought. Sure, yeah. Uh, but the guy who find, finds him is walking around going, peckerheads, why do I got to clean up after all these peckerheads? Because <laughs> uh, you fucking took the job? Yeah. I, I mean. So they find the body. Uh, Mel, the camp owner, decides to keep Jaws marrying the whole situation. <laughs> he actually convinces a cop not to not to investigate this and just dismiss it as a drowning for this uh, very accomplished swimmer. The cop in this scene has a very real mustache. Oh, just, my. Just remember this. Yes. It'll come up later. <laughs> Angela goes to the movies with Paul, or Paul asks Angela to go to the movies. Yeah. They're, they're extending their little flirtation. Yeah. And guess what? Judy doesn't take this well. No, she's she pretty She enlists off. the help of Meg. Yeah. Meg is her muscle. Meg is the pounds her fist into her hand. We're pals, ain't we, Spike? Yeah. She's going to go take care of it. But Meg is also a counselor yeah. at this place. I know. It's pretty messed up. We go to more camp hijinks. <laughs> They're playing the the shaving cream on the- Mozart? Yeah, yeah Mozart. They're doing the shaving cream on the hand and yeah. itch the nose. And, and I like to think that like in, in most things, like you name the nerd Mozart or you name the nerd Einstein. Yeah, whatever, Einstein. <laughs> but no, Mozart was like really his name. Like he's a descendant. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so- The kid pulls a fucking knife on him. A big ass blade. Oh my God, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. And and it's so amazing how the scene plays out, which again, it feels like this is a thing that might have really happened where yeah. Mozart at first is like, quit fucking with me. He reaches into his bag. He grabs out a knife. He starts like threatening. Ronnie comes in and is like, what the hell is no, going on? Gene comes in. Gene comes in. Gene comes in and is like, what the hell is going on in here? 
uh, takes the knife away, at which point Ricky is like, give him his knife back, yeah. right? Not like he was about to stab me with it, but like, <laughs> we were fucking around. We're 12 years old. Like, this is what we fucking do. There was a Hugh Hefner kid in robes. In <laughs> <laughs> He's just standing in his robe. But then they all dogpile on Mozart or on Paul because he went on a date. Gene being, the, <laughs> oh, I'm 30, and just jumps yeah. on all these children on a bed. Man. Wow. <laughs> Over in the girls' cabin. They're Bruno, getting into some like Carrie style hazing. It's, it's a little bit Carrie esque. The girls' their hazing dynamic. is more psychological. Yeah, they hate her. Their, their hazing is basically corner her and start shouting at her about how terrible she is. And that she won't shower and she probably didn't get her period yet and she's got no pubic yeah, hair. Yeah, she won't shower with the other girls. So in the next scene, we see the rival. Bunkers, the rival male bunkers who are up on top of the roof doing some stuff, but they have a bunch of water balloons. Angela comes walking by. <laughs> she gets hit with a water balloon. She goes down. She goes down. She goes. It is like Barshawn Lynch against the New York Saints. She gets pushed about 15 <laughs> yards back. She, it is like that was a. Amer- that was some American sniper shit. It is. Man. It is beginning twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan. She goes down in a. She eep. comes on frame and bloop drops with this water balloon. But how is this camp in business? There's deaths happening. <laughs> there are children out having a water balloon fight on a rooftop. <laughs> so in the next scene, Angela's very pissed off about this. Ricky's very pissed off about it. In the next scene, the water balloon thrower. Goes into the bathroom. He locks the bathroom stall. Somebody rips with a knife a little slit in the screen door. He says, I got to go take a wicked dump and goes into the bathrooms. A broom handle gets inserted into the door handle, so he's locked in. A knife slits the netting behind him. And And he's like... In comes a stick holding a hive of bees. Now, this hive of bees is... It's no bigger than an orange, an average size orange, right? And you don't see any bees. It's just buzzing sounds. Yeah. That's it. The tension is built now between shots of the door, the broom handle in the door. His feet. Billy's feet and a door. Yeah, and the lock, which is like can't open. So it's feet, door, lock, feet, door, lock, which I thought was like, again, kind of an effective way to build it. use a low budget and build tension just through three separate shots. And sure enough, he falls on the ground. His body is discovered. And he has been eaten alive by these bees. The I don't be- know what, what bees are these. Half his face is missing. Now there's a ton of bees. There's just bees everywhere. There's more bees than you can finding like two of those white boxes you see on farms and oh it's amazing so at this point mel is like well shoot that's it i'm ruined i'm ruined this is mel the camp owner i'm ruined we're gonna have to close for the summer which point ronnie oh ronnie mr good intentions ronnie says why not finish out the summer (laughs) i'll put all the counselors together that's what i love he's like we don't have to spread them out so much we'll just put all the kids together in one book it's like well jesus christ now the killer just has one place to go. But like, <laughs> why not, Ronnie? But why not? Well, the murders. You got to understand, Mel delivers every line. Like when he finds the kids shooting water or throwing water balloons on it, he's like, he says it like this. You can change. You might get pneumonia. <laughs> like, you can't understand what this man says. Uh, so... Angela goes out and clandestinely meets Paul at yep. night. They at know first we get a little uh, we get a little POV from Paul's point of view, like as a sort of fake out yep. of like, oh, maybe Paul's the killer. We'll get into this. And another thing that I found really fascinating about this movie is that this movie seems to be leading you in one very obvious direction of who the killer is. And yes. it seems like, well, it has to be this person. It has to be this person. It has to, right? It's not a red herring. <laughs> it is that person. <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't Paul. 
So then they uh, go to the lake. Angela and Paul late night go to the lake, which has a, a one floodlight placed very, yes. <laughs> very conveniently in the spot where they run around. They have a reel from here to eternity moment on uh-huh. the beach. They kiss, and then a flashback. Yep. Flashback. Oh. We see the two kids from the opening. There is the father from the opening, and there is the man from the beach. This is where the movie goes from like a bad slasher movie to like, what the fuck am I watching? What is happening? So there, there's a flashback where I'm sorry, you just said this, right? Yeah. The two kids are watching the father and the man from the beach lovingly in bed, in bed, embracing. They're each other. in bed. They're being very tender. They're obviously sexual partners, and the kids are watching and giggling, and laughing. Yeah. Then, then we see two kids in bed, seemingly the same two kids, but it's not exactly. Certain. I couldn't tell. Yeah. There's two kids in bed, and one of them is reaching out to the other. I think I believe the boy is reaching out to the girl with his finger and yeah. reaching out and reaching out and reaching out, and then she wakes up and tells Paul to get the hell out of there. Now, how did you take that? Did you take that that, that was a flashback to sexual experimentation and sexual, the first being recognizing sex? Well, we'll I think we'll get into it. There's other okay. flashbacks to come, so maybe okay. we can we will a big accumulative uh, analysis, dream analysis at the end of this. <laughs> so the next morning, they're still doing activities, even though killers on the loose. Still, still just normal camp activities. They're going to play capture the flag. I loved this scene so much. There's these two guys put, that are explaining capture the flag. One of them is doing a very bad job of like trying to explain it. The other one is taking the flag and pantomiming as though he's sticking it down his throat. That's my man Gene. He's just doing hijinks the doing entire antics. time. The other and one, and then when they say, when uh, the first guy who is int- introducing says, "Okay, Gene, anything to add to that?" and Gene says, "All right, gangsters." That's how he introduces it. <laughs> Which again, it just feels so like, it's so specific. It it feels authentic in a very strange way. They explain what Capture the Flag is. The next shot is just a bunch of kids. I guess Capture the Flag just means 20 kids run around on a football field and grab each other's flag. (laughs) Paul starts getting a little too pushy with Angela. Angela's pulled back a little after her flashback on the He tries blame-pology. Blame apologizing. Yeah, you know, like, uh, hey, I'm sorry what for what I tried, but it's kind of your fault. You're kind of cold. Yeah, exactly. Angela doesn't go for it. At which point, insidles my girl Judy. Judy swoops right on in. She's gonna pick up some Paul. Yeah. So Judy and Angela. It's pretty much just Judy screaming at Angela, telling everyone how terrible Angela is, trying to steal Angela, trying to steal Angela's boyfriend, on and on and on like this, while Angela is just sitting there staring. Ricky. Comes up to Angela and says, look, help me do this capture the flag maneuver, uh, and we'll just sneak through this woods right here. Conveniently, that's where Judy's taking Paul to get a little B-cup action going on, and they're smooching. Angela and Ricky catch them. Judy gives her her trademark sneer laugh. I did it. I did the damn thing. And Paul runs after Angela, apologizing again. Yeah. So now we're at the lake. Uh, everyone has gathered down at the lake to do all of their activities, motorboating and swimming and beach and play volleyball and all that kind of stuff. Mel grabs Ricky and asks him, how's your summer been so far? <laughs> Which is like, that shot is so composed because he says, how's your summer been so far? Ricky says, well, it'd be better if there were more guys around. And it's so great that that shot is composed with them on the left and the right. And then in between them in the background is Ronnie just lifting weights. <laughs> It's it's, it's beautifully composed. It's Kurosawa. You have to see this. Seriously. Uh, Ophel's on his best day. 
Over on the beach, Angela's just sitting impassively. Paul walks up from the swim, tries to apologize. Judy sneers in in a two-piece now. Yeah. Showing it off, flaunting Absolutely. it. And, sa- and ribs them a little bit. Paul, being the stand-up guy, says, I got to go. Yeah, he takes off. Takes off, only to leave Angela fuming silently while Meg now shows up. Yeah, Meg and Judy are both screaming at her now about she's not going to go in the water, and why doesn't she do this, and why doesn't she do that? Meg picks her up, drags her to the lake as she's screaming. Ricky is about to chase after her, but Mel grabs her because he suspects Ricky of being the murderer for some reason. So in the background, Angela's getting dragged. uh, By a counselor. By a counselor. Nobody is helping her. She's screeching. And she is thrown into the water. Uh, as she comes out, Ricky finally goes and is able to go and help her out of the water and grabs her. And as she is uh, coming back onto the beach, a bunch of very small kids, uh, younger than Ricky and Angela, are throwing sand on Angela. <laughs> uh, just adding insult to injury. To which Ricky yells, fuckers! <laughs> and Ricky uh, closes the scene by telling Angela, we won't let them get away with this. Right. So now, Meg... This is another what the fuck thing. Oh, my God. Ronnie is divvying out assignments for the night. He says, Eddie, you've got to take little kids camping. And it's like, oh, Eddie. Oh, Eddie. There is a murderer Uh, on the loose. There's a freaking mass murderer. Take nine chill little ones (laughs) out in the woods. None of us should even be at the camp. Meg, you got the night off. Meg thinks, all right, splooshes it over to Mel. Mel. who, Who is like 60 or 70 years old. Easily. Yeah. And says, hey, remember how you asked me out on a date? Let's hook up. She, Let's do it. We're going to go fuck. She's going to go fuck this 60-year-old man. So she's so, going to go get ready before. Yeah. So she goes to shower. Remember, everyone's been consolidated into one bunk. So she's going to go into one of the empty bunks and use the shower because there's a, a long line ahead of her. There's a long shot of her soaping her collarbones while singing wildly to herself. Hum, ha, dum, ha, dee, da, do. <laughs> hey, Bob, Bob. She's just soaping her collarbones. And we get the killer POV. Yeah, killer POV coming up uh, psycho style in the shower and stabs her in the back through the curtain now, and just keeps ripping the curtain down. Okay, so I the way I remembered it was he sta- uh, the killer stabs yeah. and then stabs again. But, but that's then also not- keeps yanking it okay. down. So you see the curtain being ripped down. So it's from two sides. You see the curtain being ripped down with blood, but then you just see Meg in the shower with her back against the wall still going, standing. Ah! Yeah, still standing against that. Doesn't react to it at all. Just yeah. stands up against there. And that scene ends with a shot coming in a close-up of the hand with the knife coming in and washing it off in the shower, which I thought was a really great <laughs> De Palma-esque sort of a, a capper to the scene. Angela agrees to meet Paul after the social out on the waterfront, and Judy and Mike are making out in Judy's cabin. Yeah, Eddie, uh, one of the kids that's in the woods, one of these little kids says, I want to go back. So Eddie's like, all right, I'll walk you back. And he just leaves the kids yeah. all alone by themselves he in the woods. He takes two He's kids like, back to the... Camp. There's four or five still out there, still I mean, sleeping. We're saying little kids. These are like seven-year-olds. Like, yeah, real little children. So Mel is all gussied up in his green lime uh, plug Lime ra- green slacks. He's like, I got a big date with a teenage girl. Lime green slacks it is. White leather loafers. And he goes in looking for <laughs> Meg at the social. Nobody's seen Meg because we know Meg is dead. In the- they- He goes... Just walks right in. Storms right into the girl's bunk. To the girl's cabin. Judy tells Mike to hide. Mike goes under the bed. Judy plays it off. I haven't seen. I know she went to go shower. Meg is in the next cabin showering. 
and he discovers her there and screams out, he did this to get back at me. This scene. Gotta stop him. Holy fuck. When Mel finds Meg. Not Meg. <laughs> he did this. It's He goes the full gamut of emotions. Completely insane. When, when, when Mel finds Meg, <laughs> Meg, who's been stabbed to death through the shower, Mel walks in, sees the shower drapes closed. Meg comes through the shower drapes like Mrs. Lundergaard in Fargo. <laughs> she was she was just standing the whole time. <laughs> a dead body standing up against shower drapes falls through the shower drapes when he comes in. It's amazing. So then we cut back to Judy, uh, who is back in their cabin. And a, a POV shot again is approaching Judy, and she says, oh, it's you, and gets punched, at which point... We now just see this shadows is, on the wall. This is one of the most well-shot and most disturbing uh, scenes in the movie, where you just are seeing shadows on the wall. You see a curling iron that Judy has been using to curl her hair come down seemingly between her legs. Did that happen? Oh, that happened, oh, Corky. God. No, that happened. Yeah, it was very upsetting how that, that came about. But yeah, she just is apparently sodomized with a curling iron. Yes, and which just kills her. screams and she dies. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie returns to camp after having dropped off the two kids and finds all of the children have been stabbed to death. They've been hacked with a hatchet that was conveniently left by this, them. This murder is making amazing time. <laughs> this is a- <laughs> really, and you know why? Because when Eddie runs off, we see a shot of the sky and light is coming up. So it's four in the morning, th- five in the morning. Cut back. They're just wrapping up the social. So either that social was an all-nighter and they're going back to their cabins at five in the morning or we had a little bit of time difference with the shot shoot. Uh, Mel, the owner, finds Ricky in the woods, beats him up pretty savagely and yells, yep. I got him. Kind of stumbles out of the woods into a clearing uh, and runs onto an archery range, which is kind of a bit of a, a little quick foreshadowing because Again, guess what? He gets killed with an, with an arrow. The only archery range with a floodlight conveniently on one <laughs> archery target. But he sees someone and says, it can't be you, and gets shot in the throat with an arrow, at which point... The cops arrive because Ronnie has received a call from the cops about something very disturbing. So that cop who had a very real mustache yeah, earlier in the movie. Mustache cop, same guy. He's the one cop. Now his mustache, not so real. <laughs> not real anymore. Not so real. <laughs> oh. Ronnie. So this is all like this is all happening. Like the murders are piling up super fast. So Ronnie point, right? again, Mr. Uh, bad intention good intentions done if inefficiently, gathers everybody up, says we gotta stick together. There's a killer on the loose. That's the only way. Somebody says, Well, Ricky and Paul are still missing. Ricky and Paul, let's all split up and look for them. <laughs> Come on, Ronnie, stick with the bad. Oh. Angela meets Paul on the beach, and she actually tells him to strip. Yep. Angela's going to go to pound town. Yeah. Ricky is actually found alive. He's, uh, he's, oh, yeah. He's beaten up, but he's found alive. The cop with the mustache, uh, the, which is now a fake mustache, is wandering through the woods. As Ro- Ronnie and who else is with him? The counselor who's like the good mom to Meg's bad That's mom. right. Yeah. There's one, uh, one kind of nice girl who's always sticking up for Mom Angela. Jean's counselor. Yeah. They come upon Angela. They see her from the back. She's naked and she's humming something as they approach, at which point we go into another flashback. In this flashback, which is set on a open soundstage, all black background with a window frame like hanging. Like it's a very 
I don't know, like community theater set. Yeah. And the, it's so cold in there that Tris's breath can be seen on scene. This is Aunt Martha. Yes, we've got Aunt Martha again. She is uh, still acting like Aunt Martha. She's and still acting very crazy. Saying how amazing it is that she's going to have a daughter now. A daughter which she'll name Angela of the Angels. Because I've always wanted a girl. At which point we cut back to the camp. Angela stands up. Paul's head falls to the ground. He has been beheaded. She turns back, lifts her knife in the air, freezes her face in an animal scream, at which point the camera starts to pull back, cuts to a shot of someone wearing a rubber mask of her animal scream, uh, which is why she was forced to hold so still. Pulls back, pulls back to see that she's naked and that she has a penis. (laughs) A very cold temperature penis. And Ronnie remarks, how can it be? She's a boy. Freeze frame, green tint. <laughs> End of movie. Credits roll. That's on that it. Maniacal animal face. And this animal noise that she is making, too. So, yeah, she jumps up, she freezes her mouth wide open, wide eyes. Everyone looks in horror. And then when it cuts back, it's a longer shot that pulls out. And it's clearly. A man now wearing a mask yes. that is making that expression, and we see that it has he has a penis. Yes. And that's that's it. Angela's yeah. your murderer, but Angela is actually Peter. Peter. It was Peter who lived from the very beginning. The daughter from the beginning died along with the father. Peter lived and was forced to live as Angela by crazy Aunt Martha. Fuck. And Corky, that's your movie Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, that is your movie Sleepaway Were Camp. Were you shocked by the ending? I was I was stunned flabbergasted i message you what the fuck did i just watch <laughs> this it, oh. but uh, if we want to get to it i think the movie earned it oh absolutely i think the movie earned it i mean that movie was bad and that movie was amateur hour and that movie was each scene was like i can't believe this movie each yeah. scene is like oh my god this is just terrible it can't get any worse oh yeah no it's getting worse that ending throws such a what the yeah. fuck? It's it's a very destabilizing Anything, ending yeah. in what is already a very destabilizing movie. And I think it kind of perfectly, it's almost like a perfect metaphor for itself. Because I think like it's destabilizing to the idea of, is this movie good or bad? Is this movie, is the director intentionally doing this? Or is this, am I laughing at him? And do, do those distinctions actually matter? Yeah, you know right, I mean? right. Parsing intent, is that really an important thing? If like, that's an effective image, that's an effective scene. I thought this was hilarious. Yeah. The framing is, is it, it, again, that, it's fascinating because at times you think- shot- of An- Angela goes through the credits and holds on her 10 to 15 seconds after no credits are running. Yeah. It's still that. The movie definitely wants you to have that in your mind. And I think it, it gets into this whole idea, like I was kind of saying earlier, about how it doesn't fit the mold. And because it doesn't fit the mold, we're, we're, we are kind of trained to think, that's wrong, that's bad, instead of, well, maybe it's good that it's not fitting a mold that is not very interesting. Yeah, right. I did read, I will say, uh, there was a a transgender critic who came out like very hard against this movie. Mm -hmm. And I totally understand it. And the use of, by Ronnie saying, she's a boy, and and that gender identity, and and all the politics that kind of go along with that. I will say that 
I don't really know if Angela is transgender, right? Because she was it's forced. not as though she's identifying or, she or uh, Peter has identified as Angela. Right. Um, also, but that is a valid motivation for some killers. Sure. It, 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 you have Richard Speck, you have the Australian killer, Paul, whatever. He's become a woman in jail. And that can be a valid reason that they want to kill that part of themselves that desires that and they don't understand it and they hate it. Absolutely. They do it. So, yeah, I think the criticism of it is that, you know, Generally speaking, and certainly not in '83, we weren't really getting other other views on transgender people, no, definitely on transsexuals right. at all. Not and it mainly was the they're going to be a serial killer. When real in reality, the they're much more likely to be the victims of violence than they are the Absolutely. progenitors of violence. And so it's very understandable. But I think in terms of this film and in terms of how it affects the audience, like it is such a completely what the fuck moment in a completely what the fuck movie. Absolutely. And I yeah. was just utterly fascinated. In the same way that sometimes uh, you know, like a Sam Fuller will seem like a mix of sophistication and primitive. Sure. And I I felt that this movie worked in a lot of those same ways. All right. Let's give our uh, let's give our summations. Let's do it. So to recap our rating system, we give the run of the mill bad movie a dare. The unwatchable next level bad movie is a double dare, and a movie we think is actually pretty good gets the reverse dare. Corky, what do you rate Sleepaway Camp? I'm giving it a dare. Giving it a dare. Yeah, it's a bad movie. It is not rescued at all by the ending, which I think it earned is what everybody talks about. It's a dare, which means that you can watch this movie. You should probably watch this movie because mm. somebody's going to bring up this movie sometime in your life. Yeah. And you want to be able to reference, oh, that mo- ending's fucked up. I brought it up yesterday. I watched this movie, Sleepaway Camp, three people, immediately first thing. Is that the movie with the fucked up ending? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I am reverse dare I f- one ten ten thousand percent. I figured as much. thousand percent. I figured. This was by far the most most entertaining movie we watched and it was not even close i do think that yeah it's a bad movie in the sense of what our traditional definitions of good and bad are which are mostly very binary and very boring and not at all interesting to me this movie was fascinating and entertaining from start to finish unlike can't stop the music which to me was entertainingly bad but it wasn't good this movie is close to good by being so bad. Mm. I, it's to me, it's just fascinating. It's one of those things where I think if a a major filmmaker made this exact movie and put his name on it, we would be talking about how brilliantly he's deconstructing the genre. But because it's Robert Hiltzik, we're not going to talk about interesting. That. But I thought it was a very very fascinating movie, and I recommend it. Are you going to follow up and check out the sequel? Hiltzik's Further Vision? I'll check out Hiltzik's. I'm not watching that Sleepaway Camp 2 Unhappy Campers bullshit. Yeah, no. And Teenage Wasteland, get out of here with that. (sighs) No. That's all we have for you on this episode of Scare Daniel, but we'll be back next week to review another one of your movie scares. In the meantime, check out our Thursday mini episode for a preview of our next Scare Daniel review, as well as more talk about your scares and movies in general. Until then, send your most sadistic, or in the case of Sleepaway Camp, altruistic. Thank you so much, Heather. (laughs) Uh, Send those dares to us at daredaniel.com, and be sure to follow Dare Daniel Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We won't judge. You can read more of my movie reviews in the Sacramento News and Review and at newsreview.com. You corky. Yeah. Where can people find more of your work? You can catch me at Camp Arawaks, Mm -hmm. Thursday Camp uh, Mini Play Program. When do you shower? (laughs) <laughs> I'll be showering in Mel Caustic's cabin. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good for Dare Daniel. I'm Daniel Barnes. Our producer is Johnny. He's a doer, Flores. <laughs> and I'm Corky McDonald saying, look at all that fresh young chicken. <laughs> <laughs>